0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3 through 2 Kings, the first part of chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 3, we'll begin there. As we kind of look over these last first few books of Second of Kings. Last week we bridged the gap between First Kings and Second Kings with the death of Ahab. Uh, Jehoshaphat began to reign in the kingdom of Israel and Ahaziah after Ahab's death began to reign. that's say Israel, Judah, and Ahaziah began to reign after Ahab in the kingdom of Israel in the north. And then we turned into 2 Kings with the last part of Elijah's ministry. Elijah was taken off into heaven with the chariots of fire, and Elisha appeared as his successor. And so the storyline that we're going to pick up on tonight in 2 Kings chapter 3 will be focused mainly on the ministry of this successor to Elijah, Elisha. You know, and I didn't check my Hebrew again. Did someone have a study Bible that says what the name Elisha means? Or you can Google search it for me. When you find it, tell me. If it's the Lord hears or has heard, then I win bonus points. All right. Elijah is Elisha's successor. Elijah's successor. Yeah. Oh, so nothing like that. So, <laughs> uh, like Joshua, Elisha, okay, somewhere in there is is that. Uh, Elisha is Elijah's successor. Um, remember as Elijah was leaving he asked Elisha what can I give you what can I do for you ask me anything And he says give me a double portion of your anointing and as Elijah was carried off into heaven it was clear that Elisha had this uh, double portion of Elijah's anointing the mantle from Elijah rested on Elisha and he will now carry on Elijah's prophetic calling Elisha will carry on Elijah's prophetic calling primarily in the nation of Israel, but also in the nation of Judah. Now, we've been dealing with the people and with kings that are on this continual downward spiral to apostasy, Uh, further removing themselves from God, forgetting God, worshipping idols like Baal and the Asherahs and the other false gods of the pagan nations around them, And so as we see the people and their rulers, and even as we have seen the prophets in a downward spiral away from God and disobedience to God, by now you would think if you were God, your patience would have run out. I'm done talking to these people. I'm done trying to get them to listen. But the fact that we have this continual prophetic ministry from Elijah to Elisha, that God is still getting the attention of his people and speaking to them, even in their wickedness and their idolatry, in this continual downward spiral into sin, this is a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. That God, although his people have turned their backs on him and they are walking away from him, nevertheless, he's still sending prophets, he's still giving them opportunities to hear and to repent and to obey. And of course, we know that even if the people do turn their backs on God, and we know how the story ends for both Israel and Judah. Israel going off to Assyria, and Judah going off to Babylon. They will eventually fall, and that will happen by the end of of these books. But even in that, God doesn't fail. Because the people disobey does not mean God has failed in His purpose and His plan. He will accomplish His promises and His purposes regardless of the faithfulness of the people, because God is faithful regardless to keep His promises. And we can see that even in salvation and judgment, God is accomplishing his purposes for his people. Even in salvation and even in judgment, God is accomplishing his purposes for wayward Israel through the miracles and the prophetic word of Elijah. And then tonight we're going to see Elisha and then all the prophets that are ministering during this time. If you still have that handout, I gave you one week. And if you would like this, you can, just, you can Google it yourself and go online and find it. But if you still want one, I can get it to you. It was a handout that had the, the timeline of the kings of Israel and Judah on the front. And on the back, it had the, the timeline again. But it also had when the different prophets were ministering during those different kingly reigns. So remind me, and I'll, I'll bring some extra handouts next week of that. And you can see, even in the midst of their disobedience and their unfaithfulness, God was using prophets like Elijah and Elisha to continue to speak to his people and work his purposes in their their midst. As we come into 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, most of your headings will read that Moab rebels against Israel. And so what we begin to see in these chapters, chapters 3 through chapter 8, really is conflicts. Conflicts with the nations that are around Israel. And by nations, we mean people groups. Not necessarily countries with kings, although they are, uh, but people groups. And here we have this rebellion of the Moabites. And what we see in this first conflict, this first conflict of Second Kings, uh, are echoes of previous blessings and warnings of coming problems. So if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 22, the Syrians were on the heels of Israel, and the king of Israel, Ahab, went down to Jehoshaphat, remember, and asked for his help. Will you go up with me against the Assyrians, or the Syrians? Will you help me fight? We had this similar story going going on in 1 Kings chapter 22. There was an enemy at the gate. Israel asks Judah for help, and they go to war together. The Lord blessed them. The Lord gave them victory. They won. So we're going to see echoes of that blessing. We're going to see the king of Israel surrounded, enemies at the gate. He's going to go to the king of Judah, ask for help. Yes, I'll help you. Also, Edom comes along. And we're going to see victory, temporary victory, followed by sort of an embarrassing defeat. So we see echoes of previous blessings as God gives a temporary victory. We also see warnings and warning signs of problems to come. And one of those comes in these first three verses. Look at that with me, 2 Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, southern kingdom, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. So that's in the north. He reigned 12 years. And now we're talking about Jehoram here. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember how we get this report card. Though not like his father and mother... For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Okay, so he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but we almost see a little regression in the badness. Remember, uh, Omri was worse than all the kings before him. And then his son Ahab, it says, he was worse than all the kings before him. And now we have Jehoram, another one of Ahab's sons, reigning in his place after the death of his other son, Ahaziah. And it says, he did evil, but not as bad as his parents, for at least... At least he put away the pole to Baal that Ahab had erected there in the temple of the Lord. At least he got rid of that. So it seems that at least he doesn't worship Baal, though also in many other ways he does not obey the Lord. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The only inference we have is in 1 Kings 12 of, Jer- of Jeroboam setting, or 1 Kings earlier in 1 Kings, Jeroboam setting up two golden calves. If you remember that. So that's the only reference we have to know what the sin is that he walked in, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. So that sets up the scene. Another king of Israel, wicked, did not do what was right inside of the Lord, didn't worship Baal, at least took Baal out of the temple of the Lord, but also engaged in this other idolatry, probably the worship of these golden calves. And on to that problem, we add another problem in verse 5. As Misha, the Moabite king... Raises a rebellion against Israel. In verse 4, we read that he used to deliver to Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That was under Ahab. Maybe it was an agreement they had, a treaty they had, some sort of trading agreement. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams he used to deliver to Israel. But now that there's a new king, he says, you know what? We don't want to do that anymore. And so he raises a rebellion in verse 5 against Israel. And he's going to go to war against them to not have to deliver these goods to them anymore. So in light of this rebellion from Misha and the Moabites, Jehoram, the king of Israel, makes an alliance with the kings of Judah. One, that's Jehoshaphat. But also we have another player, the king of the Edomites. Verses 7 through 9, we see these alliances made as Jehoram is fearful of the Moabites and wants to fortify his kingdom against their attack. So he's going to go up against them. He gets Jehoshaphat's help. He gets Edom's help. Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, this is Jehoshaphat, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So as they go to war, they begin the battle. It appears like they're losing. Bad things are happening. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah says, what have you done with us here, Jehoram? You brought us out here into the battlefield to give us over to the Moabites? We're gonna die out here and our people are gonna become slave to the Moabites. Verse 11, and Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Now, if you remember earlier, 1 Kings chapter 22, Syria was the enemy at the gate at that point, and um, Ahab, the king of Israel, went to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, again, similar story, asking for help. Or actually, and then what did, you, what did Jehoshaphat do in that part of 1 Kings 22 that's different from what we see here? What? He inquired of the Lord when? In the, in the sequence of events. In the sequence of events, let's, let's say the sequence is Ahab asks for help, they go to war. Where in that sequence does Jehoshaphat say, let me ask the Lord? Where does he say it? Right when they're fighting. No, not right when they're fighting in 1 Kings 22, before they begin fighting. Yes, I will go with you, but first let me ask of the Lord. Here, in 2 Kings chapter 3, we see a little bit different story, don't we? They begin to go to war... And they had made a circuitous march, it says in verse 9, for seven days. And now they've run out of water. And only then in verse 10 does Jehoshaphat say, Wait a minute, let's ask of the Lord. Now, it's not a huge ordeal. I mean, we're not told this was a big sin on Jehoshaphat's part. But if you're paying attention, you see a little bit of a difference here, don't you? In Jehoshaphat's heart, the first time Ahab comes to him asking for help, with a military endeavor, he says, yeah, first, first, let me ask what the Lord says. And now here we have a rash decision to go to war. There's no water. Oh, we're going to die, and we're going to be led into Moab's hand. Now, let me ask of the Lord. What does this signal on behalf of Jehoshaphat and on behalf of Israel? A few things. It signals at least that there's forgetfulness of the Lord there's a forgetfulness of the Lord whereas in the first instance Jehoshaphat went to God first now God seems to be an afterthought whereas prayer to the Lord and seeking his will was the first step back in 1 Kings 22 now it seems to be the last ditch effort to save a failing campaign because there's no water And of course, as we've seen, as the heart of the king is, so is the heart of the people. And so how we see the king acting here, the king of Judah, no less, Jehoshaphat, so is the heart of the people, forgetting the Lord, making rash decisions, going on ahead of the Lord, operating outside of the will of the Lord, and not seeking the Lord's guidance and the Lord's help. And that will be manifested in the rest of the war. Uh, I'll go ahead and give you just a little bit of a spoiler They will win the main part of the battle, but then they will have an embarrassing retreat later. And so we see that reflected as we see first, 1 Kings 22, God gives them complete victory. But here, in relation to their forgetfulness of God and his power and his will, God gives them a partial victory and humiliates them after. As we go into 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha's ministry continues, and we see a series of miracles. Um, and whenever you see miracles in the Bible, it's, it's important to understand what the purpose of the miracles are. Miracles in the Bible are most often identified as what we call signs. They're not just magic tricks. Uh, they're they're not really even intended to draw a crowd. I think a lot of us think of miracles as that in the Old and New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles, uh, the ministry of the prophets, that they did these miracles to draw a crowd, or that they did these miracles to prove themselves to be true. Satan does counterfeit miracles too. Okay, and so this isn't. Um, this isn't a situation where we have miracles being done to attract a crowd or to draw a crowd. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, sometimes he does miracles, big miracles, and it does the opposite. Instead of attracting people, it scares them, and they run away, or they tell Jesus to leave their town. Okay, so those miracles, we've we got to rethink how we, we see miracles. Here in this section of Scripture, the miracles that Elisha is doing are to prove that he is Elijah's true successor to prove that he's Elijah's true successor. And more importantly, to show that God is faithful from generation to generation to keep on performing his will and his work. Elijah died, but the will of the Lord goes on. Elisha will die, but the will of the Lord will go on. Same thing comes with Jesus. Jesus dies, he's buried, he rises again, he goes to heaven. But then his ministry in Acts is carried on through the apostles and they do similar things to what Jesus did, showing that they have the power and the authority and the message of Jesus. The same thing is going on here with Elisha and Elijah. How have we already seen Elisha carrying on Elijah's ministry? Um, think back to let's see, chapter two, Second Kings, chapter two, verse twenty. Um, the men of the city said that the water was bad and so in 2 Kings 2:20, Elisha says bring me a new bowl and put salt in it so they brought it to him and he went to the spring of water which was bad and threw salt in it and said thus says the Lord I have healed this water from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it so the water has been healed to this day according to the word of Elijah uh, Elisha. same thing happens in chapter 3 Uh, Chapter 3, look at verse 16. There's a dry stream bed, there's no water, but Elisha comes along. Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, so there won't be a storm. There won't be rain, this will be miraculous. That stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink you and your livestock and your animals. So what, what was in the ministry of Elijah that's similar to this? Elijah had the power from the Lord to withhold rain from the land. Elijah, by the power of God, caused a drought in the land because of Ahab and the people's idolatry. Remember? And then it was at Elijah's word on behalf of God that the rain came back after he proved Yahweh to be the one true God on Mount Carmel. And so we already have seen these similarities. Or even at the end, when Elijah is about to be carried off into heaven, remember they part the Jordan River, they go across, and then immediately after Elijah is taken up, Elisha proves himself to be the successor by also parting the Jordan River. So we've already seen these little signs that Elisha is the successor to Elijah. But as we go through chapter 4, we see three primary miracles that prove this further. Number one is the multiplication of oil. Look at 2 Kings chapter 4, let's just read the first seven verses. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So this widow is in this, this dire situation, as many widows found themselves in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, there's no husband. She had no grown children, it seems. There's no one to take care of her. And the people that are requiring money of her, she doesn't have a job. Her husband had the job. Her husband made the money. And in most situations, she would have been needing a kinsman redeemer to come and help her, to marry her, and to give her um, a well-being and life and all those kind of things. But Elisha is the only one she can turn to. So Elisha turns into that sort of kinsman redeemer for her. Verse 2, he says, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And he said, Go outside and borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Go out and get a lot of empty vessels. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. So we have a multiplication of oil. Do you remember in the ministry of Elijah, a similar miracle? He was staying with the widow of Zarephath, remember? And he says, I'm hungry, go make me some bread. And she says, well, we don't have that much flour or oil left. He says, you do what I say and the Lord will provide. And she goes in and that jar of oil and that flour did not disappear and was not used up until the drought was over. So we see a similar miracle, a widow, a multiplication of oil, a similar miracle reproduced here in the ministry of Elisha. Then we have the raising of the Shunammite's son. The raising of the Shunammite's son. In chapter 4, verse 16, he promises this Shunammite Gentile woman, a wealthy woman, it says. He says, verse 16, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. She doesn't believe it. But the woman conceived and she bore a son. That's an important phrase in the Bible, by the way. She conceived and bore a son. Should always highlight that. About that time the following spring, as Elisha said to her. So she uh, wants a child. Elisha promises by this time next year, sounds very similar to Abraham, that's important. By this time next year, you will have a son. She conceived and bore a son. But we read in verses 18 and on that the child grows up. One day he's out working with his father in the field. In verse 19, he says, oh, my head, my head. Now we're not told what the problem is. But we're told that they put him to bed, he falls into a deep sleep, presumably he has died. The rest of the story indicates that the child has died. And so the woman goes off to find Elisha, who had been staying with them but had now gone away. She goes out to find him, brings him back to the house, and in verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So by the time Elisha comes back, the child had indeed died. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. Remember Elijah, when the widow of Zarephath's son died, and he came into the room, stretched himself out over the child. We see a very similar thing going on here, and there's a lot of speculation as to why they did this particular sign. We don't know. Elijah stretches himself out over the child Elisha now stretches himself over the child it says at the end of verse 34 the child became warm then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house went up and stretched himself on the child and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes then he summoned Gehazi his servant and said call the Shunammite so he called her and when she came back to him he said pick up your son she came and fell at his feet bowing to the ground and she picked up her son and went out So in a very similar fashion as how Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son, now we have this Shunammite woman's son raised by the power of God through the prophet Elisha in a very similar uh, set of circumstances. Verses 38 through 44, there's a provision of food for the prophets. So the prophets and the sons of the prophets were sitting there and verse 38, there's a large pot of stew Boiling. But when they go to get the stew and they are going to begin to eat the stew, verse 40, one of the prophets says, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Now it's interesting, earlier there was death in the water. Elijah sprinkled salt into the bowl. The water was, quote, healed. Now in verse 41, he says, Bring me flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men. That they may eat and there was no harm in the pot." Um, so a lot of people, you know, look at this and they, they, do, they do see some similarities to miracles from Elijah, um, how God provided Elijah bread and meat in the wilderness by the ravens, how Elijah provided those cakes and the bread for the woman, this multiplication of food, but a lot of scholars also see this as a unique miracle. In other words, God had shown his continuation of Elijah's ministry through Elisha through two miracles, but now we have this separate miracle that seems to be a new uh, sort of sign or miracle for Elisha. We see both a continuation of Elijah's ministry and a transition to Elisha's ministry. I think it was Jessica's old home church. Wasn't there a message preached one time? The pastor was mad at the church, and he preached a message called Poison in the Pot. That'll preach. It ain't right, but it'll preach. Uh, (laughs) Poison in the Pot. Poison in the Pot. What's the other one people preach? Uh, Ichabod, the glory has departed. I like that. Poison in the Pot. Nothing to do with what the text is actually saying, but people twist the text to suit their own purposes all the time. In this, we see God's provision and care for his people. And I want you to begin to notice that theme in these miracles. We do see miracles in nature, in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. You know, there's there's a drought, uh, there's punishment, there's miracles of punishment like the drought. Um, But we also see these miracles of provision, And that when these signs happen through the prophets and here in Elisha's ministry, they're often happening for the care of other people. The first one happening for the care of this widow and her sons. The second raising of the Shunammite son, uh, son happening for her sake and her family, her husband, her child. And now here we see God blessing these prophets and the sons of the prophets by giving them food to eat. So God is providing God is caring for his people. God is faithful to his people. We also see signs of miracles to come. He's someone else who will raise the dead. Someone else who will multiply food and care for his people. Someone else who the Old Testament says will feed his sheep like a shepherd. We see signs pointing us forward always. In chapter 5, we have the story of one big miracle, and it's after, after effects. And we see that God is gracious, not just to his own people, but to all people. We've already seen that in the Shunammite woman, haven't we? The widow of Zarephath. We've seen God blessing Gentiles through these prophets, Elijah, Elisha, people that were not part of the covenant people of God, God blessing them and God providing for them. And now we're about to see one, which is not just any old Gentile, but here we see God's grace to a commander of Syria's army. An enemy of God's people. An enemy of God, no less. And now we have him showing grace to this man. We say Naaman. You can say Naaman if you want to be really... Fancy about it, but I'm going to say Naaman for the rest of our, our time today. So, Naaman's problem is that he has some form of leprosy. Uh, in verse 1, it says, This is Commander. He was a mighty man of valor. Verse 1, the end, but he was a leper. Now, when the Old Testament uses the word leper, it could mean they had diagnosable leprosy, as we would know it, uh, but really it could mean any sort of debilitating skin condition that would have rendered them unclean according to those Levitical laws. So any sort of skin condition could have been included in this. It seems to be very debilitating, maybe painful, embarrassing for Naaman, and he wants to be healed from it. And the wife of Naaman, in verse 3, said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, probably talking about Elisha, he would cure him of this leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so, spoke from the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this letter gets to the king of Israel asking for help in healing Naaman's leprosy. And it's interesting that when the king gets the letter in verse 7, the king of Israel, he says, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thinks this is some sort of uh, being lured into some sort of war. That he's being asked to come and cure the man of leprosy, misinterpreting the whole situation. Luckily, in verse 8, Elisha overhears the letter. He sees that the king has torn his clothes. He hears that Naaman needs to be healed of his leprosy. And in verse 9... He goes, uh, Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Hey okay? Anybody ever sing a song when you were in children's choir? Uh, I forgot the whole rest of the song except and he dipped, and he dipped, and he dipped, he dipped, he dipped. And he came out clean. He, and we made this little craft one time. We had a little... I think it was a plate or something. And we had a little man, little man Naaman, on a popsicle stick. And he stuck up through this little slot in the plate. And when you sing the song, you do this craft where you could dip him down in the water. Except he always kind of looked the same. Naaman is told to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And when you come out, you'll be clean. And we think, man, that's really easy. That's all I got to do? Go down and dip in some water seven times and I'll be healed of this leprosy? But verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying behold i thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the lord his god and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper are not abana and farfar the rivers of damascus better than all the waters of israel could i not wash in them and be clean so he turned and went away in rage and naaman seeks healing from the god of israel interesting he doesn't turn to his own gods doesn't turn to his own prophets he seeks out this God of Israel perhaps he's heard this God is the true God this God works miracles but rather than being happy with with Elisha's pretty simple easy instructions he's angry now first of all we'd have to ask the question why do you think Elijah does do it this way He doesn't go to his house. He sends out the messenger to meet him in the road and tells him, go wash in the, the river Jordan seven times. Elisha doesn't come and lay his hand on him. He doesn't raise his staff. He doesn't wave his hand around. There's no connection with Elisha really whatsoever. I think at least in part, God is showing Naaman that the power is not in this man, Elisha. The power is God's. Now, God has called Elisha. God uses Elisha, but he's not God. And so Naaman would have been used to calling on his wise men and his magicians and his medicine men and the religious leaders or priests or whatever pagan customs they had to come and do some sort of ritual or some sort of incantation and to heal things. And maybe God is using this to show him, that's not how I work. I do what I want how I want. So instead of bringing some man to come and touch him, the man sends his messenger out and says, go dip in this dirty, nasty water seven times, and ironically, you'll come out clean. And then he's incensed about that. Well, why would he tell me to go to that dirty old river in Israel when I could dip in these fresh, clean waters here in Syria? Maybe God wants Naaman, this mighty commander, to humble himself even more. Instead of commanding how he thinks he needs to be healed or how he thinks he's going to be healed or what the process is going to look like, you need to hear the word of the Lord and you need to humble yourself and obey it no matter what you think it should say or how you think this should work. But Naaman is angry. He thinks this is beneath him. These waters are dirty. Why would I go and do this to myself? But thankfully, his servant has a little more sense than he does. Uh, Verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? You, You hear what they're saying? Naaman, you've got a serious problem here. And here is a man of God, this one true living God, who sent fire down on a mountain one time. And all he's asking you to do is to go wash yourself in this river. Don't you think you can at least do that? So Naaman, in verse 14, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman is healed there in verse 14. And in verse 15, he professes Yahweh to be the one true God. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company. and He came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Now this is a big deal. Remember these pagan nations? They didn't necessarily have any problem with you having your God. Now the Syrians said, we have our gods. Israel, you might have your God. Remember back in their battle how they thought that their God was the God of the the mountains, uh, but not the God of the plains, but God proved himself to be God overall. So it's important that Naaman says, not just your God is a great God. Or your God is a powerful God amongst all the others. He says, now I know that there is only one true living God, and it is your God, Yahweh. Now whether we realize it or not, what's going on here is a fulfillment of Solomon's prayer all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, I will read it to you. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43, and a part of Solomon's prayer for the temple. Solomon says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people come of Israel, a Gentile, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigners call to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon's prayer for the temple was that it would be a beacon to people of all nations, and all the world, drawing them to the one true God, the God of Israel. So that when these foreigners, even when they ask something of you, Yahweh, you'll do it for them and they'll know that you're the one true God. And then we turn just a few chapters later in the ministry of Elisha, and we see that happening through the prophet Elisha to this commander of the Syrian army, Naaman he's healed and he confesses Yahweh is the only true living God the story though ends with a tragic note as we pick up into verse 20 Elisha turns down the present from Naaman he wants to give him a present some reward some payment for his healing Elisha says no and Elisha and his servant Gehazi turn around and go back to go home. But in verse 20, Gehazi starts thinking about that treasure. He starts thinking about that payment. He thinks, maybe I can slip away from Elisha here for a moment. And, and he might have refused the payment, but maybe I can go back and weasel my way into being paid. And so starting in verse 20, that's exactly what happens. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he bought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well, my master. Uh, All is well. My master has sent me to say. And then he begins to lie, right? Lie number one, Elisha didn't send him to say anything, and he certainly didn't send him to say this. There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. So Naaman gives him these things, gives him this payment, based on this lie, he turns around and goes back. But Elisha in verse 25 realizes that his servant has been gone and he asks, "Where have you been, Gehazi?" And he said, "Your servant went nowhere." Lie number 2. <laughs> right? You did go somewhere. And you did do something, and now he lies to Elisha, his master. You know, if you're going to lie to someone, prophet probably isn't the one to lie to. And, but he lies to Elisha. In verse 26, Elisha says to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Elisha wasn't there. Elisha wasn't present. Yet God gives him this insight into exactly what was going on. He says, Gehazi, my heart broke when you left me to go take from Naaman what I had refused. And when he turned to meet you, Elisha knew exactly what was going on. He says in verse 26, Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Answers, obviously no. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Now why, you know, if you're the biblical authors, we keep doing this in Kings, don't we? We get to this really good thing that happens and then, well, you know, what was all that for? But there's a purpose in it. Again, we're beginning to see God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's provision, God's healing. But the author wants to keep reminding us of the sinfulness of the people. And he wants to keep reminding us of the sinfulness even of the prophets and their servants this is not just some ordinary israelite person this is a servant of the man of god and yet we see greed we see idolatry we see dishonesty all of those present here even in the school of the prophets and the reminder the reminder the sad tragic reminder is this isn't going to end well we keep having these happy notes, and God is going to be faithful. But for Israel and these people, it's not going to end well. In chapter 6 through 7, we see another conflict erupt with Syria. Um, starting in chapter 6, and, and chapter 6 begins with one of the more interesting miracles <laughs> in all of the Old Testament. <laughs> in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, "...now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, "...see the place where we dwell under your charge." It's too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get a log and let us make a place for ourselves to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them and they came to the Jordan and cut down trees. But as one who was felling a log, his ax fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed in the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And it made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. This is an interesting, weird, (laughs) what we might call a small miracle. But it's here for a reason. Again, nothing is here that doesn't have a reason. The people are about to go to war. They're about to face another conflict with Syria. And in the middle of all that... God shows provision down to this smallest little point for his people. And one of the sons of the prophets drops his axe in the river. They're trying to build some place for the prophets of God to live because they've gotten so large and the place is too small. And yet here they are and the guy drops his axe in this raging river. Can't get it up. But then Elisha puts a stick there in the water. It pops up, he grabs it, and they continue on. And you go, and that's it. There's no no lesson that follows. There's no, this is why the Lord did this. But we can look at this and see God caring and providing for his people. As we go on into the story, we're going to see why that's so important. Because Syria, verse 8, was warring against Israel. And the king of Syria, again and again and again, was trying to just map out his course just right where he would meet up with the king of Israel and be able to capture him or kill him. Now, here's another sign of God's faithfulness. The king of Israel was wicked. We already know that. He deserved to die. He deserved to be taken off his throne. He deserved everything that was coming to him. Yet every time he goes and every time the king of Syria tries to catch him, God was using Elisha to intercept the king and tell him to go another way. And sure enough, over time, the king of Syria gets wise to what's going on. And here in verse 12 of chapter 6, one of the king's servants brings to his attention what's going on here. There's no spy. There's no one telling the king where to go. Verse 12, he says, None, my lord. There's no spy, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And so he keeps thwarting, that's a good word for you tonight, Elisha constantly thwarts the king of Syria's plans to kill Jehoram. He thought it was a spy. He thought he had a mole, a snitch, and he was trying to figure out who it was that was tipping off the king where he was going. But it wasn't one of them at all. It was the prophet Elisha who had no knowledge of what the king said, except that the Lord was revealing it to him. And so he was showing his faithfulness even to that wicked king of Israel. So the king of Syria sets out to capture Elisha. He says in verse 13, Go see where he is, that I may send and seize him. So the king of Syria finds out where Elisha is. He's in the land of Dothan. I want you to go there, take an army, surround the city, capture, or better yet, kill this prophet who keeps messing up my plans. Verse 15 through 20, Elisha knows that this is happening. His servant knows that this is happening. And he begins to see in verse 15, he says to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse sixteen, Elisha said, "Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them." Now, if you're the servant, you might begin to think Elisha is a little, little off his rocker here. Uh, they're they're coming in verse fifteen. It says. An army with horses and chariots. They're building a wall around the city of men and armies. And you say there's more with us, yet it's just me and you here, Elisha. What are you talking about? There's more, uh, more with us than there are with them. And Elisha begins to pray to the Lord. And he says, O Lord, verse 17, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the servant, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The miracle that the Lord performs here is enabling this servant to see into the spiritual world the way Elisha does. He didn't at first grasp what Elisha meant when he said, there's more with us than there are with them. There's no army here. We have no horses, no chariots. We have no commanders and spears and swords and shields. How, how do you say there's more with us than there are with them? Elisha prays and immediately the servant's eyes are opened and he sees exactly what Elisha is talking about because surrounding even this army is the army of the God of hosts. Not just an army and not just chariots and horses, but men and chariots and horses of fire. should remind us back when Elijah was taken off into heaven. Remember what showed up to take him into heaven? Chariot and horses of fire. And didn't Elisha say at that time, these are the armies of heaven. That's what I'm seeing right here, the hosts of heaven. And now he sees, and now his servant sees. What does this say about this servant's spiritual sight? What does it say about our own spiritual sight? Now, I'm not saying that we should be seeing stuff. In fact, if you start seeing stuff, don't come to me. Go to a doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. But we can be very blinded to the reality of spiritual warfare because we're scared of getting too weird about stuff, because there are ditches that you can fall off of. There's always ditches. That's just always something to be mindful of. The one ditch is to be so obsessed with these things that it's everywhere to you. You know, I just remember back in when I was a kid, and Somebody would get up to sing a special song for Sunday morning service, and maybe their tape didn't work, They're the this cassette tape, because that's what they were using, or uh, you know, the microphone didn't work, and, you know, what would they inevitably say? it's the devil. The devil's trying to discourage me. I mean, maybe the tape player just didn't work that day, but it was, it was Satan every time. He just really did not want them to sing that song. Or Maybe Satan hated cassette tapes. I don't know. But it was always the devil. And so we can go too far off one ditch and blame everything on Satan and see Satan in in everything. And Satan is in this, and Satan is in that, and that's Satanic, and that's the devil. And I think that's a ditch, especially when you start seeing stuff and hearing voices and all that kind of stuff. Okay, You see this all the time with popular Christianity on TV and the radio, where everything is a demon that's supposed to be bound and cursed, and I curse this and I curse that, and cancer and sickness and death, and, and we just go around cursing everything because it's all the devil. Now, the other ditch we can fall into is that we treat the devil as if he's not real at all. And there is no spiritual warfare. And there is no such thing as demons or Satan or temptation or dark forces. We know better than that, don't we? So the best place to be is right there where we understand that Satan is real, that demons are real. We also understand that God is real. And that the angels of the armies of heaven are real. And that there is real spiritual warfare going on around us in our lives, in our minds, our hearts, the hearts of our families, the lives of our families. You don't believe in spiritual warfare. I want you to come to my house sometime on a Saturday night. Amen? Sometime on a Saturday night when we're thinking about the Lord's Day and going to church and i got to preach. And sure enough, Satan gets a hold of every last kid in my house. and, (laughs) And the cat, right? cats every night around 5 a.m. she goes berserk but spiritual and I mean I'm, I'm kind of kidding but I'm kind of not because the Lord Satan wants you distracted he wants you angry he wants you bitter he wants you impatient those things that the spirit wants for you patience love joy peace patience kindness the devil wants the opposite and he knows where to target you spiritual warfare is real the servant failed to see that and so often we fail to see the same thing how is Israel's spiritual decline revealed in Syria's siege and uh, the famine? Starting in chapter six, uh, verses twenty four through thirteen, um, the king of Assyria the king of Syria ben Hadad has brought up his army against Israel again, and the king of Israel is walking around and he sees this woman. This woman is standing on the wall. There's a famine in the land, there's no food, there's conflict. And he sees this woman, and the woman wants his help. And she wants his help because they're hungry. And the woman says in verse 28, this, The woman says, This other woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. She wants the king to intervene in this dispute. But the king is flabbergasted. He tore his clothes in verse 30. He realizes where the people have come. That they're so desperate for food. They're so wicked. They're so evil. There's no dependence upon God. That now they've gone to this extreme that even the pagan nations didn't do. They might have sacrificed their children to Molech, but they didn't eat each other. But now Israel herself is engaged in this very thing. And so the king heard the words of the woman. He tore his clothes. But who did he get mad at in verse 31? May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. He's mad at Elisha. Who does that sound like? Ahab? Elijah, you troubler of Israel, this is your fault. And now he sees the famine in his land. He sees this siege by Syria. He sees this cannibalism amongst his own people. And whose fault is it? Not his, not the sinfulness of the people. It's that troublemaker, Elisha, and I'm going to kill him. And so again, you see the decline of Israel, that they're coming after the man of God. And in the next verses, he goes after the man of God. But the closing scene of this whole... Thing happens to prove the authority of God's word. In chapter seven, as they come to get Elisha, Elisha promises that there will miraculously be food, and that there will be plenty of food. He says, About this time, tomorrow, a flower shall be sold for a shekel and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. What's he saying? There'll be a lot of food available tomorrow. The captain doesn't agree. The captain doesn't believe him. And the captain says in verse 2, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could these things be? Elisha says, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And what happens in the next verses is that Syria is camped. They're about to come and get Israel. But as they send spies into the land to see what's going on with Israel... They see this body of water, and to them, because of the light of the sun, whatever it is, this body of water appears to be bloody. And they think, man, these Israelites have done gone up against each other, and now they're surely going to come after us. And so they go back, report this to their army in the camp, and their camp flees because they don't want any part of this. They're all dead anyway. We don't need to do anything. So they flee. They're scared. Uh, It says in verse 7, At twilight, they abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. Some other army has come in here, whether it's the Hittites or Egypt, or someone has come against this army. They hear the sound of chariots all around them, miraculously by the Lord's doing. There are no chariots, there are no horses, but they hear the sound. This is interesting because with Elisha, they were there and nobody could see them, except Elisha and the servant. But now this army is granted to hear them, and they think it's some other earthly army that's come to help Israel, and so they flee, they run away. So as they run away and they abandon their camp, these lepers come, and they're going to go in and they're going to ransack the Assyrians' camp, they're going to take their goods, their gold, their silver, but they kind of come to their senses, And they say, you know what, we're probably going to get in trouble for doing this. (laughs) If we go in here, we're going to end up getting caught. We're going to probably be killed. So the lepers decide, instead of taking it for themselves, let's go tell the king of Israel that Syria has fled. And once they go tell the king of Israel, the king of Israel checks it out. He says, you know what, they have fled. They have gone away. And so they tell the king, verse 16 Then all the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. And guess what's there? So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain, on whose hand he leaned, that same captain that said, God will never do this, he can't do this, that unbelieving captain. And when when Elisha said, you will see it, but you won't taste it for yourself what happens to him here in verse 20? So it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. So the Lord miraculously provides all this food for his people because the Syrians flee. That man who didn't believe it now sees it for himself. He sees it, but what happens to him as he's beholding it? The people who are running out like a Black Friday sale for Tickle Me Elmo. You know, they're going, out to, <laughs> they're going out to get this food, and they trample this guy. So he sees it, but he doesn't get it. But in all of it, God's word is proved true and binding and authoritative. Exactly what Elisha said would happen, happened, just as it did with Ahab, just as it did with Jezebel. Chapter 8 Begins with one story. I'm not going to read it to you. But the Shunammite woman, remember from earlier? She went away to try to find food during the famine. She wound up up with the, the Philistines. Sometimes North Carolina comes out of me. She wound up with the Philistines. And she comes back to the land only to find someone else staying in her house and taking her land. And so she appeals to the king. Now earlier... Elisha asked her, because you've taken me into your house, tell me what you want me to ask the king, and I'll do it for you. And the woman said no. But here she comes before the king by Elisha's request, asks for her property back and her land back, and the king grants it to her. And so this section closes with this final little blessing to the Shunammite Gentile woman. God's blessings to outsiders are all over this section of Scripture. A Shunammite, a Gentile widow, a Syrian commander. We see God's care even for the marginalized and the outcast. Sounds a lot like the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? Who ministers to the Syro-Phoenician woman, the Gentile woman, who heals a centurion's son, centurion's servant. We see God's care for the marginalized and the outcast. Another reminder of God's promise to Abraham that underscores all of this. Remember what he said to Abraham? I'll make you a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. Here we see that coming again to fulfillment. God's work always goes on. Elijah dies, Elisha dies. But God's work always goes on through this process of spiritual succession. Elijah, Elisha, the prophets that come after them, the prophets that keep coming after them, all the way down to our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' own public ministry commences in the Jordan. Keep seeing the Jordan, don't we? Jordan River comes up again and again and again and again with the prophets. Jesus' own ministry commences there with the ministry of John the Baptist. It's a pivotal spot for Elijah. It's where he was carried off into heaven. It's a pivotal spot for Elisha. He parted the the waves there, parted the river, and then he healed Naaman there in the river Jordan. And all of Israel, back when they came into the promised land in Joshua chapter 3, was through the Jordan River. If John the Baptist was the pinnacle of prophetic ministry, in other words, he was the last of the old covenant prophets. He was there on the precipice, on the verge of the new covenant. He's the one that actually saw it face to face. All the other prophets longed to see it, but John the Baptist sees it. And if he's the pinnacle of that prophetic ministry, Jesus is its fulfillment. We've crossed over Jordan into the promised land in the person of Jesus Christ. All the types, all the signs, all the imagery point us to the ministry of Christ. His ministry touched the poor. His ministry touched the leper. Those should all this be ringing bells. His ministry touched the outsiders. Better yet, the work of Christ brings near those who were far off. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that you were not a people, you didn't belong to God, you didn't belong to the covenants. You who were far off though, me, I who was far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Naaman dipped in the Jordan to be cleansed of his uncleanness while the Lord Jesus was dipped in the Jordan To identify as the bearer of our uncleanness. And lastly tonight, if God cares about axe heads and Shunammites and Syrian captains, he cares about you. Jesus said, not one sparrow falls from the tree that my Father in heaven doesn't see it. He knows every hair on the top of your head. Are you not of more value than the sparrows? Are you not of more value than some axe thrown into the river? We see God's care for the outside, the marginalized, the outcast, the sinner, the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to bring near that which was far away. And that's me and that's you. And all the way back there in the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha, we see these signs pointing us to this one who was coming whose miracles and whose life and whose death and resurrection would bring us back to God, would provide salvation for us for eternity in the Lord Jesus and his gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this night. Thank you for this time to study in your word. I ask that you would bless it. Send us now with your Holy Spirit's power to be lights in this dark world, pointing people to you, the one true and living God through Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.